pull out your Bibles, and that is true. He is our strength. He's our shield. He's our fortress. He's our mighty one. You know, sometimes as we go through the various stages of life, the things that we have to go through on this earth, you know, God never promised us thornless roses. Amen? Every once in a while you get pricked, you get pierced, you get bloodied by the world. You go through things that you don't want to go through. And it makes you long all the more for heaven. That's the glorious promise that we have in Jesus, by the way. And that's why this passage is so important to us this morning. Study that I've entitled The Dangers of Disdain. That word disdain is one of those words we don't use much in our English language anymore. It used to be rather popular. But it can be used as a noun, can be used as a verb, it can be used to describe somebody, or it can be something that someone does. And it means a, a feeling that someone or something is unworthy of one's consideration or respect. Or to have open contempt for. And this morning we have three specific little vignettes, three small stories, a parable. We have two singular people and a group of disciples that we will look at. That Jesus is beginning to address with the importance of the simplicity of the gospel message. I would remind you that he is on Jerusalem's doorstep. We get to the next chapter, he will get there. We'll find the triumphal entry. He's almost there. And so he's taken the occasion to explain a few things in front of the disciples that are so important for us this morning. Because it's easy to kind of dismiss the gospel message in our own little personal quirks. Maybe today you have a legalistic attitude about some facet of the Christian life. Maybe today you could be found in that group of disciples who somehow thinks that it's a bother for children to come to Jesus. Perhaps you have disdain because the ministry is going to cost you your life. You see, these things are easy for us to kind of spin off into. And so this morning, we'll pick up here in chapter 18 and verse 9, all the way down through verse 30, and we'll visit three men who get it all wrong. Not something we want to repeat, but very instructive and very encouraging to us too. As with all things, when Jesus is speaking, almost without exception, there is a negative side to the instruction, but a positive side if you hear it and do it. It can be a freeing experience. And so I pray this morning that we'd be set free from our little quirks, the things that maybe are keeping us from being more valuable to the king and his kingdom. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we're just so grateful for this time this morning. We are amazed by your word and its power to affect change in our lives. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would instruct us. We pray that heaven's windows would be opened, that our understanding would be increased, that we might receive and know and grow. Pray that you would bless our time as we study. Help us to retain these things for future use, Lord. Help it to not go in one ear and out the other, but help it to settle in in the tablets of our heart where we can use it. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. First man we meet is a man who disdained the prayer of a tax collector. And this first little story, this first parable is so important to us as Christians. Because when you have walked with the Lord for a while, you have a tendency to kind of think that you've arrived in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you're here this morning and like, I've been in full-time ministry half of my life. I've had the privilege of of doing what I'm doing right now for a very long time. I know a vast majority of God's word by heart. Not all of it, but compared to most, a lot more than most. Have the opportunity to see God work in wonderful ways. You can almost lay hold of those things and begin to have disdain for people who aren't quite there yet. And there's a beautiful picture here and a reminder for us. Verse 9, here in Luke 18. And also he spoke a parable to some who, circle it, underline it, trusted in themselves. Their view of God's grace had been reduced to what they knew about it and what they could do about it. And it is important for us to remember that we're all here because of the cross of Christ. We're here because of the grace of God, His unmerited favor. We're here because of His mercy, that He doesn't give us what we deserve. We're here not because we're worthy, but because He has made us worthy of receiving that gift of salvation. By Jesus Christ, not by you. Not by me. Not by your legalistic little things that you do or do not do. Not by your particular view of some theological point. Not by the color of your skin. Not by the depth of your knowledge of the word. Not by your church attendance. Not by your giving. When you grace the doors of heaven as Steve and Pastor Chuck have... They didn't enter in and say, man, when Steve got there on Thursday, I can tell you what he didn't say. Did you see how big my church was? No wonder I'm here. I guarantee you, he fell on his face before Jesus. And frankly, maybe we all need to be on our face a little more before Jesus. I know I do. And so we see this man who trusted in himself. That they were righteous and despised others. Isn't that weird? 
how we can be delivered from so much junk ourselves. We are has-been sinners, amen? We're not good at it anymore. We used to be really good at sinning. But as a believer, you're supposed to be kind of lousy at sinning. You still do it, but not as good as you used to do it, amen? Isn't that weird how you forget where you came from? You're wandering around thinking you're all that. I do it every once in a while. On this prayer that this Pharisee is going to pray scares me half to death because I think about my own life. There have been times when I've prayed this prayer. I've thought these thoughts. I've entertained these very things. Not quite this way. But, oh God, thank you, I never did that. God, I'm glad I'm not like those people. I mean, they're really sinners. I mean, they go to the movies. God, they have television. We all have our things, don't we? The stuff that we kind of hold up as our own little personal contribution to our righteousness. Can I tell you what the Bible says about your righteousness and mine? It's as filthy rags, amen? That there is none righteous, not one. Not you, not me, not anybody else apart from the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. So we don't have any business being legalists. We need to be gracists. And again, it doesn't mean that our lives shouldn't change. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be transformed. It doesn't mean our minds shouldn't be renewed. It simply means that when we see someone else who's maybe not quite there, we ought to have a whole boatload more compassion for where they are. And I preach this message to myself. We need to have more compassion for lost people. Because I'm going to tell you something. The second guy in this first story gets it. That's why he prays what he prays. Let's look at it together. And so he speaks his parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Noble objective, a good idea, a wonderful thing. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One a really hyper-religious legalist who was dressed to the nines in religious garb. He had no tats, never smoked, He was not a guy who ever tasted Budweiser, never made it to his lips. And then you got the IRS agent who used to visit that club. I'm modernizing this for you because this is exactly how silly we can get. We can be so far into ourselves that we forget we were once just as messed up as that person was. We can lose sight of the fact that for by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's God's gift to me and He even gives me the faith to even believe. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed thus with himself. I like that, with himself. Because nobody else wanted to be around him. Pompous, arrogant, openly religious, 
Nobody could match his standard. He's over by himself, and he's so completely disaffected by his own self-righteousness. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not exaggerating this passage either. This is the connotation of this passage. Thank you, I'm not like that poor slob over there. Because he's really messed up. And I, of course, am not. Because that guy over there, he's an extortioner. You see, he actually was firing at the tax collector. Because the Pharisees and the Jewish people believed that the tax collectors were extortioners. So he fires first shot, goes right at the tax collector. Well, like this guy, I don't even know why he walked upstairs. I mean, come on. I mean, be near me. I mean, look at the bells on the hem of my garment. I am so awesome. I have now changed over 1,000 diapers in the nursery. I have incessantly given myself to understanding Greek and Hebrew. I have not one, not two. I have five Bibles. And every one of them's got marks in them. I have never, ever in my entire life watched a PG-13 movie. It's Disney or nothing prior to 1965 for me. And of course I'm being a bit facetious here. But to draw home the point... We can get like this, folks. We can become so enamored with our own self-righteousness that we forget that we were once lost, dead in our trespasses and sins. And maybe you're not like that person. And yes, of course, the consequences of sin can be very extreme in this life given the type of sin you're engaged in. There is a different price to be paid for the person who is an adulterous murderer than the person who every once in a while tells their kids there is no Santa Claus. Okay? That's here. But when you get to heaven, sin is sin. And it only takes one to keep you out. It takes them all being washed away, whatever flavor they are, for you to get in. And that's the position that's being talked about here. It's not are we circumstantially better than the person sitting next to us. It's are you better than Christ? Are you good enough to get there yourself? I think we can all say, no way. Amen? That's what he says. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even as this tax collector... I mean, he's an IRS agent. Come on, none of them can be saved. He He's a Democrat. He's a progressive. Of course, they're all going to hell. Can I tell you there are people who think like that? There are people who think like that. 
You're not going to heaven or hell because you're a Republican or a Democrat. You're going to heaven or hell because you're a Christocrat. You believe in Jesus. It's that simple. Notice how he tries to justify himself. I fast twice a week. Whoop-dee-doo. I give tithes of all that I possess. Lord, I go out into my herb garden, and if there's a little extra anise or mint or cumin, I pick that out, and I give you a tenth of that too, because I'm really righteous. I tithe on my couch cushion change. I give to the Lord before taxes. Why am I beating this? Because we can get caught up like this. And pretty soon, you believe in some kind of self-imposed righteousness. Well, I do this, I do that, and I do this, and I do that, and of course I do this, and I, oh, I really do that, so of course I'm saved. One reason, one reason alone that you'll ever enter the glories of heaven. Jesus Christ's blood on Calvary's cross shed for you. Without your sins being remitted, the sin remained, and you will die in your sins and perish eternally. Not because you went to church. Not because you read your Bible. Not because you gave. Not because you served in the mission field. Not because of any of those things. And so Jesus continues. And the tax collector, and notice this, standing afar off. He knew he needed Jesus. So I'm not even worthy to be here. You know, when you come to Christ, there's something very, very specific that happens to you. You realize you don't deserve to be here. Standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He couldn't even look up. Understood fully exactly what was wrong. You see, you can't be a saved sinner unless you first admit you're a sinner. You can't be a saint until you recognize you're an ain't. Amen? you got to get that. Because if you don't realize you need a Savior, then you can't be saved. That's why the truly religious, self-inflicted religious person that says, I'm good enough, doesn't understand how bad they are. That's why when we come to Christ, we come on our knees. Amen? I couldn't lift my eyes to heaven either. When I got saved... I couldn't look up either. I spent that evening crying. Like, Lord, why didn't you kill me earlier? I recognized it. And I'm sure most of you did as well. And he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. He recognized exactly who he was, and he recognized exactly what he needed. Notice he didn't say, justify me. Notice he didn't say, take care of my issues. He said, don't 
Give me what I deserve. Give me compassion even though I don't deserve it. Give me mercy. Give me what I don't deserve. For I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, just as if he had never sinned. It's the easiest way to think on that word, justified. Because of Jesus the Son, right in the eyes of God the Father, just as if you had never sinned, He has made you justified. Your price has been paid at Calvary's cross. Your sins have been remitted and His righteousness put in your account, just as if you had never sinned. Not because of you, because of Him. That man went justified to his house rather than the other, the other man. For everyone who exalts himself, notice this, polar opposites will be humbled. You think you're good enough? God will humble you to show you that you're not good enough. Little secret to spiritual life, you don't want God to have to humble you. If you humble yourself before the Lord, your word, your Bible, this Bible says you'll be lifted up. But God hates a proud spirit. And he humbles the proud, is what your word says. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the picture here in this first guy is he thought so highly of himself that he didn't need Jesus. The Son of God is standing right before him. And he couldn't see him. Because all he could see was himself. That's a dangerous place to be. Because self-deception is the worst kind of deception. When you think you've already gotten there, you don't have anywhere to go. Amen? Think about it for a second. When you have already arrived in your own mind, your own heart, what is there left to do? I've realized I haven't arrived. And there's a lot more journey to undertake. There are more mountains to climb. More giants to slay. You see, this man was nothing but a religious hypocrite. Legalism, gossip, slander. The do as I say and not as I do mentality. This is why I've shared with you all so many times. And it's so important for us to remember. And it's one of the easiest ways to deal with this issue in our own life. Imagine your own thoughts being broadcast for the world to see behind your head. There's a little tiny video screen that when you begin to think, it pops up behind your head. It's right here. And every last thought flashes across it. How many of you want that to happen today? Good. That means you're all sane. I don't want it to happen because there are things that I think that I shouldn't think. As a child, I shouldn't think them as a heathen going to hell. I shouldn't think those things. Someone who doesn't know Jesus, that thought shouldn't come into my mind. We were down visiting Austin yesterday in Vista. and I, 
just so you know, you see me on the road, there's something you don't want to do because you'll put me immediately into sin. Tailgate me when I'm already doing faster than the speed limit. I don't drive slow. There's a reason that my, my sons drive the way they, they saw Dad do it. Okay, I drive quickly, expediently. I'm looking to go from place to place. Troy on a mountain bike, he drives faster than everybody on a mountain But me in a car, I go pretty quick. So when I'm going down the hill and I'm already squealing the tires around the corner, what I don't want to see is your bumper three feet from mine. I start to think bad things. I don't want to. I even pray, Lord, deliver me from that person. The canyon's over there. Then I have to repent. No, don't nah, don't listen to me, God. We all think things we shouldn't think. Amen? Amen? You need to say amen. Okay. We think things we shouldn't think. Can I remind you that to dwell on those things is actually sin? I'm pretty sure that I want those things dealt with by the cross of Christ. So at the end of the day, even if it only boils down to not the things I do, but the things I think, I'm still in trouble. Hallelujah for God's mercy and grace. Amen? That's this first picture. The rabbis used to speak scathingly of those who weren't like them. And here are these Pharisees in all of their pomp and circumstance and splendor, would look at the poor tax collector and go, God, thank you, I'm not like him. Please don't do that, because God will humble you. Has me. Has me. And he loves us too much to leave us like we are. Matter of fact, his word's very specific. He chastens those whom he loves. And if he doesn't, you kind of need to check and see if you're actually one of his kids. That's what his word says. He chastens those whom he loves. He corrects his own. You see, when you look at this Pharisee and this tax collector, on one hand you'd go, wow, the Pharisee's really religious. I mean, he goes to church, he does all these things, but he was lost compared to the tax collector. The tax collector got it. Be quick to recognize maybe you don't know everything. Maybe you don't have somebody's heart pegged just correctly. Leave room for grace to work in people's lives. The tax collector had it correct. All that was needed was simple repentance. Amen? It's so important to see this. Not religion. Not works. Lest any of us should boast. Amen? But by grace we've been saved. It's not of works. It's not of ourselves. Very important that we don't be like a Pharisee. Verse 15, the second man actually is a group of men, but it's related specifically to one person, to Peter. Verse 15, and they also brought infants to him. So it's like he's standing on the side of the road. He's just going one story after another story, one parable after another parable, one example after another example, and he's just letting these things fly. He's saying, guys, I'm heading to Jerusalem. You're getting a crash course in what it means to be one of my disciples. 
And they brought infants to him. And that word can mean small children all the way to actual real infants. But it was tiny children, children who were incapable, really, of going anywhere themselves. It wasn't like these were youngsters. You know, they weren't 12-year-olds. These were little tiny children in their mother's arms. That he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. When the disciples saw these spiritual moms, this mops club, this, this group of moms with children in preschool or whatever they were, this, this group of ladies that just came from the hood who were walking with their kids and their infants in their arms or heading towards Jerusalem, when they saw Jesus, they said, Isn't this the guy that healed the blind? Isn't this the one who turned the loaves and fish into enough to feed a multitude? Is this not the guy who raised the dead, who cast out demons? Man, we want him to touch our kids. Well, that's really bad. And yet, look who's saying, hey, don't bug the master. He's busy. It's the disciples of all people. It's the disciples. We can kind of make that into you and me. How sad it is when the church keeps God's kids from Jesus. How sad it is when we reach that place to where we're so concerned about the smudge marks on the wall, we're so concerned with the chalk art out there in the parking lot. Can I just tell you, I actually had somebody after VBS. You not any longer attend this church because I offended them. And they told me so, to my face. But after VBS, they came and said, you know, the parking lot looks like a mess. And I said, not to me. Well, they rode all over the parking lot. Uh huh. And after the first rainstorm, it'll be gone. And I looked up right in the eye and I said, Have you wandered around and actually read any of the things that are written out there in the parking lot? It was scripture after scripture. I love my Sunday school teacher. I love this church. I love Jesus. There were all kinds of verses put down there. I'm so glad I got to come to VBS. This is the best thing I've done all summer. If you had gone out there and actually read it, it all of a sudden wasn't graffiti. It was art. Amen? Amen. you got to see it for what it is. Those little ones have been entrusted to us, maybe for the one time out of the year, that they're going to get to come to Jesus. And the disciples didn't get it in this story. They missed it completely. And so Jesus calls and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. You realize what he's saying? He said, for all your thinking, you have arrived. My kingdom's made up of kids. Because you guys haven't actually gotten there yet either, and you just proved it by what you attempted to do. 
And so he says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. You see the simplicity of the gospel? You see what happened to the, to the tax collector? God, just be merciful to me, please. You see what happens to the little kids? I just want him to touch me. Religion gets in the way of all of that. Sometimes church gets in the way of all of that. Because that is the kingdom. That's God's plan. You ever thought about what it would actually be like if mankind made up a plan of salvation? Think about it for a second. Think of how complex our lives have gotten in the last, say, 20, 30 years. It used to take you, what, two minutes to fill out your tax return? This is how much I made. This is how much I paid. This is how much I owe or I get back. That was it. I mean, literally, the old tax forms were a half of a page. You remember that, some of us older folks? They were actually a half a page. They were not even a whole page. They were a half a page. Then you signed it. Last year, Connie and I's tax return was over a hundred pages. Over a hundred pages. Think of our laws. Washington State, you're going to start getting fined if your trash man feels like your trash bag is too heavy and it might have organic debris in it. You're going to pay a fifth dollar fine because you threw away the wrong kind of garbage. Now imagine that we would come up with something that would equate to eternal life. Now you know why Jesus said, my kingdom is so simple that children can enter in. Because if it was up to us, it'd be so complex that nobody would get in. Matter of fact, we'd probably kill each other trying to figure out what it is. Disdain. The disciples disdained little kids because the master was too busy. Do you know how important he is? I mean, he's king of kings and lord of lords, we think. We're not quite sure what that means. Matter of fact, we just proved we don't know what that means, but don't bug him. May we get bugged every day by somebody who wants to come to Jesus. Amen? These mothers were brilliant. They were spiritually in tune. They knew what their kids needed. Totally amazing. But these disciples, completely out of touch. Think about it for a You talk about being out of touch. How could they have walked with Jesus for two plus years and ever gotten to the place that when a mom brought her baby over to Jesus, they thought the right response was, don't get near him. You ever get like that in your own life?
Ever too busy? Too much shame. I can tell you I've been too busy at times to tell people about Jesus. Well, you know, I got this going on, I got that going on. I, you know, I realize your life's falling apart right now, but I'm important. Okay, I'm really important. Can't you see how important I am? I mean, look, I look important. I'm wearing important clothes. Got my important shoes on today. Got my important book. I've got a pad. Must be in my cell phone. <laughs> I even know how to text. We get so self-absorbed that we forget the whole object of being left here on this earth is to tell people about Jesus. Realize that's your number one calling while you're here for the rest of your days is to tell people about Jesus and see to it that they get to come close to Jesus. And hopefully they'll do that by meeting you. And most of the time, most of you do that very well. I don't want you to be condemned at all. But it's a tune-up for us. Because you can get so caught up in ministry even that you forget that you're supposed to draw people to Jesus. We don't want to give a wrong impression. You see, the disciples almost made it as though church was the last place these moms would want to be. And that is sad, folks. the reason we do what we do in children's ministry. We need to love little kids. And then finally, a man who disdained the demands of discipleship. This last story is the longest of the three, but it has a central point. And that central point is rather simple though the story itself is somewhat complex. And the central point is this. Apart from Jesus, it's impossible to be right with God. Notice what he says in verse 18. Luke writing now says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I circle it, notice it, Underline it, highlight it, do. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in the original language there, it meant to objectively take an action of some kind. What do I do? What thing do I need to do? What is it? There must be something I can do to inherit eternal life. Do I need to tithe more? Do I need to teach Sunday school? Do I need to go in the mission field? Do I actually need to be nice to my sister? Do I need to get up earlier so I can do devotions? What do I need to do so I can inherit this kingdom life, eternal life? What do I need to do? That is the question 
that a vast majority of the world asks to this day. It can't possibly be that simple as believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It, it can't be. There must be something I need to do. There's got to be a class. I mean, don't you have a class on being saved? Can I take the being saved class? Don't you have a program that I can enroll in and I'll get a little certificate so that I'm now a Christian? Aren't there a list of things that if I just do them, I'll somehow become one of God's kids? You see, real discipleship means taking up your cross and following Jesus. Real discipleship means saying yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But you're saved by faith, not by doing anything. It's not by any good works that we have done. But by his grace, he has saved us. The book of Romans lays this out in great detail. Read it in one sitting. Just sit down and read the book of Romans. You'll know why Martin Luther read the first chapter of the book of Romans and the aha moment happened. I'm saved by grace through faith. Unmerited favor of God. And Jesus says to them, to him, excuse me, well, why do you call me good? For no one is good but one, and that is God. He is calling himself in that sentence, God. He's saying, look, if you're equating me to being good, because the word good here means to be perfect, if you're calling me perfect, in other words, as a human being, there's none greater than this, there's only one of those, and that one person is God. And then he starts to give them a little bit of a test. Do you know the commandments? Now, being a good Jewish young boy, a young, he was a yuppie. I think this guy was undoubtedly, you know, what we would call a yuppie in the old days. It's someone who was upwardly mobile, they're, they're young, they're in the prime of life, they've got more money than they know what to do with, they drive a Beamer, they're wearing nice clothes, they hang out in all the right places, they've got a condo at the beach, and they've got another one in the desert, doing well. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You see, he gives them all of the manward commandments. He says, these are the things that the Ten Commandments say that you are commanded to do towards other human beings. Notice his response. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Since the moment of the age of accountability, I have lived my life like that. I am awesome. Absolutely, utterly amazing. I am like a 10 on a scale of 10. Matter of fact, if you look up ultimate coolness in the dictionary, it's me. I'm a good-looking guy, I got money, I got houses, and I am morally upright. 
Don't do anything wrong. When Jesus heard these things, he said to him, "Eh, Wait a second. You still lack one thing. And then he gives him something that would call into question the depth of his discipleship. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became become sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? It's tough. It's hard. And it's so hard that Jesus then gives them an example. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I want to be very careful because this passage has been fought over for centuries. And I believe thus far that most of the argumentation has been for nothing. Because there are a couple of translational things here that if you translate them one way, it means one thing. If you translate them the other way, it means another thing. But the point is, it's impossible. So on one hand, you have the person that says this passage literally renders this way, and Jesus is actually talking about a literal needle and a literal camel. Not happening. Amen? Everybody good with that? Okay, so if that's the original intent, we call that impossible. Things happen every day. No, we, it's impossible. Amen? Can't happen. Not going to happen. Choice number two. That the word translated camel here is actually the Aramaic root camel with a K. And it actually means rope. So now you have a literal needle and rope. What word do we need to use? Impossible. You're not putting rope through the eye of a needle, amen? Third option, and the one that's usually used in evangelical circles. That the eye of the needle was a secondary gate in the main gates of fortified cities so that that gate would be opened at night after the big city gates were closed to allow those who were trying to get into the city, but they could not come in burdened. And they surely couldn't bring a fully loaded camel in with them. Also, impossible. But there's a couple of wonderful things about that analogy, and I'll just give those to you. I happen to think it's that one, by the way. Though the majority texts do not agree. They, com- they vary to all three of those things. To me, it doesn't matter because the result's the same. But in the case of the eye of the needle and the camel story and the gate that was inside of the city gate, when you looked at that particular situation, there was exactly one way for that camel to go through that secondary gate that would be in the main gate. And that was to release that camel of all of its burdens. 
than it could go in. In other words, it was impossible, fully burdened by the weight that it carried for that camel to go through that gate. Why would that be important to us? He's basically telling this guy, look, you've got a burden. And that burden has weighted you down. And if you want to enter into the kingdom, you need to get rid of the burden. It's impossible. You can't get there. Whether you're talking about passing rope through the eye of a needle, or whether you're talking about passing a literal camel through a literal eye of a needle, or whether you're talking about getting down on your knees as a camel. Did you know that camels can get on their knees? They actually can. That's how you get on them when you ride them. They actually get all the way down on their knees, and they kind of sit there. And by the way, they can't walk when they're on their knees. They can't crawl. They can't do what you and I They have to stand up to walk. So you have to take the burden off of the camel. Basically, the Lord's saying, look, you need to check your motivation here. You kind of want the kingdom, but you want to keep your stuff. You you, want to have what I'm offering you by grace and through faith, but you want to earn it. And that, friend, is an impossibility. You can't do it. So he's going to test him. And in testing him, he says, look, prove it. Prove that you want to be in my kingdom. And so he attacks the one thing that this man is unwilling to give up. Can I remind you that you can't keep anything about you and be a Christian? Does it mean that you're going to be perfect the moment you say yes to Jesus? Oh, no, absolutely not. But it does mean that you don't hold anything back from him. It means that everything that he asks you to give up, you give up. Every burden you need to lay down, you lay down. And everything that keeps you from him, you say, Lord, you can have it. It's not worth it. And we know that this is what Jesus was getting at by what follows. Notice what he says. He says, look, you're being very sorrowful. And those who heard it, well, who can then be saved? He said, well, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. You see, you get the picture. Pass a camel through a needle eye, not going to happen. Pass a rope through a needle, not going to happen. Pass a camel through the needle eye gate, not going to happen. It's impossible for you. But with me, I can unload your camel. With me, I can trim down your rope. With me, I can actually get a real camel through a real needle if I need to. I created the needle, I created the camel, I can do whatever I want. That's our God, amen? That's why when somebody comes and says, well, I'm a drug addict. That's just your camel and your needle. That's all it is. Somebody comes and says, well, I'm in this relationship. That's just your camel and your needle. It's not too hard for God. Well, you know, I've got all these things, this money. That's just your camel and your needle. It's not impossible for God. All things are possible for him. There is nothing too hard for him. And then Peter, and this is why we know it was Peter he's talking to, said, See? We're right on. We left everything and followed you. We did it. We're awesome. 
And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that there's no one who's left his house, his parents, his brothers, his wife, his children. He's not teaching that you're to leave your family to follow Jesus, by the way. But the result of following Jesus sometimes does ostracize yourself from your family. Amen? Sometimes they, they won't talk to you. Sometimes you may lose a spouse. You may come to Christ, and your wife or your husband may leave you. What he's saying is if that happens to you, then the reward that you have both notice this in this life and the next are great. And he uses a term here that we translate myriads. It, it means multitudes. We would say it's like 10,000% better. It doesn't mean that those things don't hurt. It just means that it's better from an eternal perspective and immensely better. Who shall not receive many things and many times more things in this present time and in the eternal age to come. He gives them a reality check. He says, look, there's nothing you're giving up right now that isn't going to be made up later. Nothing. I was thinking about Pastor Steve. Yeah, I've had some great times while we're here on this earth. Just crazy, silly stuff. But I can tell you, as he's gotten all these surgeries, he's been almost incapable of doing anything other than studying and teaching. And even that has become immensely hard. And one could say, well, he gave up everything. He did. He literally did. That's why if you read his book, Overwhelmed by God, you'll, you'll see it. You can read about it. But I guarantee you, what he's thinking right now in heaven is it was all worth it. Time's about a jillion. Whatever a jillion is. It's not a real word. It's not a real number. But it's a lot. Times a jillion. You know, like little kids. Well, infinity times infinity to you. Yeah, it's like that. It was all worth it. And that's the perspective we're supposed to have. Otherwise, we begin to disdain the things that God asks of us. We begin to disdain the path that God commands that we take. Because you know what? It's hard at times. It's hard at times. I I haven't met a believer yet that hasn't been able to recount something in their life that they had wished had gone a different direction. Well, I wish I didn't have to go through that. Or I wish I didn't have to do this. Or I wish, you know, these things hadn't been said to me. Or or just on and on and on. And you can fill in the blank. Most people are not real fond of cancer. And yet, how many times have we seen God use cancer? We're not real fond of people going bankrupt. And yet, we've watched God use people going bankrupt. Lose a job. Everybody hates to lose, and yet God uses us losing a job to put us exactly where he wants us to be so we can do something new in our lives. If we disdain the process, then we set ourselves up in a way that God is going to have a real tough time getting to us. And so he tells them, look, there's one thing you lack. Here comes the test. You love your stuff. Get rid of it. And it's interesting because in the original language here, it's almost as if for a moment he actually thinks about it. There's kind of a pause, if you will. For us, these sentences would be constructed with a bunch of commas in them. It's like he thinks one thought and then the next thought and then the next thought. It's like, "Mm, nah. 
Not quite. Almost, but not quite. You claim to love me. You say that I am perfect. You say that I am good. You want kingdom life. Your question is, what must I do? He couldn't even do what it took to open the door. See, he wasn't going to be saved by selling his stuff. But he couldn't even do that. What's our hope of getting to heaven by doing? Zero. None. There's no hope in getting to heaven by doing anything. Because the moment you can say you did this, two seconds later you can say, I didn't do that. Amen? You get the process? That's why you have to be saved by grace. And you have to get that grace through faith. And once you have that, you get God's mercy. And then you are justified, made just as if you had never sinned. Then you're sanctified. You get a little bit more like Jesus every day. And you begin to mature. And all of a sudden, glory. You're home with Jesus. You see, this guy didn't want to give up his stuff. He got a reality check. You see that eye of the needle? Those are the eastern gates in Jerusalem, by the way. Those are the ones that the Muslims walled up because they didn't want to give Jesus a chance to come back through the eastern gates like those rocks are going to stop Jesus. But in there you can see what are called the eye of the needle gates. They're the smaller gates in the middle of the old holes, and those used to be there in the original wooden gates that were there. Small, you couldn't get a camel through those. Not with a burden on them. And you can't get to heaven carrying a burden of your own self either. This guy was sorry, but he wasn't sorry enough. He kind of ended up in an inconclusive situation. And it appears that he just kind of disappeared in the crowd. It's like he heard something he didn't want to hear. We have a lot of people that come to this church and they just disappear because they heard something they didn't want to hear. It's the way God's word works. I hear things I don't want to hear sometimes. Not that I don't believe it, by the way, but I hear things that I don't want to hear. Lord, I don't want to love that person. I don't even like them. How am I supposed to love them? I, I, I see sometimes I, I have pretty low tolerance for child molesters. I'm like, I'm kind of one of those guys that shoot first, ask questions later. When I think about me, that's not my Jesus. Jesus loves the lost of all flavors. Sometimes I'm a little intolerant for certain types of lost people. We've got to give that stuff up. I go, you know what, Lord? Your kingdom's made out of people like me. It's operating in a functional deficit. I'm not perfect either. And I have no right to expect that of anybody. And so he says, look, he done load your camel. You need to trim down your rope. Basically what he's saying is you need a miracle. You need a miracle. And that miracle is called grace. That miracle is you accepting, me accepting, us accepting what Christ did on Calvary's cross as the only means of rectifying our miserable existence without him with the glories of heaven.
That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. Because I'm no bargain. I don't know about you guys, but I'm no bargain to God. Christ's blood was shed on Calvary's cross to redeem me from the, from the life of sin that I lived. And it takes his blood to this day to redeem who I am apart from him in my fallen nature in Adam to this day. If there wasn't a constant work of forgiveness going on in my life. And you need to think about that. You have been forgiven from eternity past to eternity future in Christ Jesus for salvation. But for relationship, you need to be forgiven every single day so that you can continue to talk with God and meet with God and pray to Him and seek His face and be used of Him. You need that constant cleansing. Why else would Paul say, if we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? It's an ongoing process. It happens eternally when you say yes to Jesus. You're good to go. But then it continues to happen for as long as you're on this earth because you're still a wretched sinner who needs a Savior. That's why Paul, as the author of Romans, said, Oh, wretched man that I am. Amen? He was saved when he wrote that, by the way. You see, everything that we give up on this earth one day is going to be worth it. We don't want to disdain the things that are the simplicity of the gospel. It's not by any good thing that we have done, but by his blood that he has redeemed us. And because of that, one day, just like my brother Steve and Pastor Chuck, they're, they're experiencing right now the glories of heaven, the fullness of joy. No more metal knees or spines. No more cancer. Whatever you've given up here, is going to be worth it 10,000 times over when you get there. It's that simple. Because there's nothing impossible for God. Let's let Him do the impossible, family. Let's let Him work in those areas of our lives where maybe we're a little legalistic. Maybe we don't quite represent Him the way we should. Or maybe... We're hanging on to something that we shouldn't. You see, these three things can keep you outside of his abundant blessing. And I pray that we wouldn't hang on to any of those things. That we wouldn't disdain the simplicity of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And I want to pray very specifically if there's anybody here that's, that's never just put it all on the altar. Never said yes to Jesus. God, that you just speak the truth of how much you love them. Pray that they'd receive and believe and be saved. God, pray that you'd watch over us and keep us and use us for your glory. Lord, thanks for loving us. Lord, thanks that we don't pray the prayer like the Pharisee, God, but we pray the prayer like the tax collector. God, just be merciful to us. Thank you for unburdening the camels of our lives. Thank you that we once were children. Help us to be more childlike in our faith. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.